have the Bloods colonized Haitian scholarship? Because I'm hearing complaints about that. Like, oh, you're probably going to be bien passé nourri, you know that? Well, I mean, I think as scholars, you know, we kind of push against the idea of the ivory tower and that we're somehow separate from everyday people or everyday or the larger society. Mm -hmm. But I think in other ways, scholars do tend to imagine themselves in that sense. Um, and what I mean by that is that people think about Haitian studies, the organization or Haitian studies as a field, and they think about it as something separate from the larger dynamics in which we all participate. Mm -hmm. And so what the, the phenomenon that you're talking about and that people have pointed to in terms of a lot of um, foreign or white scholars in Haitian studies, that makes sense given that Haitian studies is mostly evolving in the United States. Um, it makes sense when you think about the power relations that exist between the United States and Haiti. It makes sense when you look up at the universities in the US, right? And mm -hmm who are professors, who are tenured professors, which programs have the most, the most money, who gets funding, who gets grants. All of that is not separate from Haitian studies, right? And mm -hmm. so there are going to be repercussions from all of that onto what you see in these dynamics between scholars studying Haiti and those who are from Haiti and those who are not. So that doesn't mean that people who are not Haitian should not study Haiti or that they don't have anything to con contribute, I just think it means that we should look at these um, relationships and these dynamics and see if these are things that, um, if what we're seeing is what we want to see, and if it's not, how can we change it to make it something that mm -hmm. we are more comfortable with? Okay. Wow, that's a very good diplomatic way of answering that. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>If you don't mind, super mind time. Explain to us comment by la lot bon pour. Bon, premier bagage là c'est que bah la différent pour chaque monde dépendant de qui ils ont mm -hmm. Chaque jour sont zones différentes. Donc par exemple, je dis à bon la calme d'Elma, bah il est très calme en haut d'Elma. Comprenez? Uh -huh. Mais par exemple, des matériaux qui étaient relés de trois amis que bien pour ma sœur parce que hier soir entendez c'est ma sœur qui était chaud. Vous comprenez? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Donc, situation, c'est chaque jour, par contre, les qui zone qui affecté, qui frappé. Et puis, bon, nous tous, nous baguons gaz, donc l'eau vient difficile pour nous joindre, l'eau pour boire, ou bien nous avons boire dans ma pièce, ou bien nous avons besoin de pain, ou besoin de viande. Donc, ça, c'est des bagages qui affectent tout le monde. Donc, c'est une situation très difficile, tout le monde en pile. Uh, parce que pas de machine, tout le monde est gens qui sauté dans la l'arrière, pas de monde dans la l'arrière, uh, l'école est fermée, les banques ne pas vraiment fonctionné. Donc, nous avons une situation côté tout le monde vraiment à suivre, de temps en temps, il y a une manifestation côté, il y a des qui arrivent, mais à part ça, tout le monde sait suivre, n'a suivre, ça va passer, ça va venir. Donc, la question est où sentez-vous comme si... Uh, do you feel like you have to do something or are, do you feel uh, a sense of helplessness or are you just sort of in between in this sort of liminal space of, you know, between mm -hmm. the two extremes? Yeah, I think it goes back and forth, at least for me, between the, the two. Because, you know, we were, I was talking about it with friends the other day. It's, we see the Haitian population in general seems to have a pretty good grasp of what's going on. Like we see the major players, we see the stakes, but the average Haitian doesn't really have much power, doesn't feel like we have much power against what's happening, right? Mm 
And so that I think generates a feeling of helplessness. But then at the same time, I think there are moments or ways in which we can do things. And, you know, so you see people, some people, they are on the radio speaking out. Some people are writing articles. Some people are in the streets. Um, there are all kinds of actions happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the cumulative weight of these actions will be if they have any real weight um, against what is coming, what's happening. But, you know, so I think we all go back and forth between these feelings of helplessness and frustration and feeling like, you know, we have to do something, whatever, however small it might be. Uh, were you there doing, uh, 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 you know, when when the Lavalas movement was was coming, you know, sort of burgeoning, you know, yes, burgeoning yes. into, do you do you have that same sense that something like this catalytic is going to happen because there's an en masse sort you know, of movement about to happen, or is it different? Uh, I think it's different, but the difference is not necessarily on the Haitian side. Mm -hmm. um, even before the assassination, there were several large demonstrations and protests against Moïse, against um, PHTK, against UN um, in their BINU kind of um, expression here. And those demonstrations all felt very big. They all felt very urgent. And I had, I felt the same kind of energy that I had felt in that period that you're referring to. I think what's been different um, this time around is more the international response. I feel like there's a very strong commitment on the part of the international powers that be to keep Piashtika in power. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that's the difference. So the difference is not necessarily on the Haitian side. So let's move on now to uh, after that. I don't, even, <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to put this at the end of the episode at the beginning. Because <laughs> it seems like we're going to talk about something, you know, very academic, but in reality, yeah. it's not, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's all part of the same type of story, it is. right? In it some is. Way. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote something in the, uh, or, I know it's a collaborative effort, but uh, better it is. But you wrote something that Haiti is a highly symbolic nation. Mm -hmm. uh, so besides experts like you, uh, you said few venture beyond the symbol. You know. Well, so as you say, it's a it's a collective venture. This is from the Haiti Reader, right? Right. And uh -huh. so I'm not sure exactly which of us um, or which combination of us came up with those particular words. Uh -huh. um, but yes, Haiti is definitely very, uh, very much a symbolic nation. Um, it symbolizes different things to different people. The symbols are not necessarily or definitely not all bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, when people, for a lot of Black peoples around the world, Haiti is, you know, it's the revolution. It's slaves rising against masters, overthrowing the system. So it's a good symbol, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a positive symbol. I think there are two responses, I guess, to your question. One's, one is people don't go beyond the symbol because they don't want to. And usually that's, as far as I can tell, is the people who are referring to the negative symbol, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Failed state, um, you know, nothing can go right, everything is wrong all the negative and racist stereotypes that are associated with Haiti. When people have that image in mind, there's no reason to go beyond that, right? Because mm -hmm. it, the symbol is the power, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then I think there are people who have a positive image or for whom Haiti is a positive symbol, and it's not necessarily easy to go beyond it, right? It's something um, that we confront a lot here in the cultural sector, for example, um, dealing with literature um, and other artistic expressions in Haiti. Mm -hmm. What we have access to from other Caribbean islands um, or elsewhere, it's all very much mediated by larger, more powerful nations. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if I think about connections between Haiti and other islands, a lot of times it's mediated by France, by the US, by Canada, etc. 
And so if you don't have personal connections, if you don't know specific individuals in these other places, specific institutions that you can work with or call upon, it would be hard to go beyond whatever the curated image is of that place. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the average person who might have a positive image of Haiti, who sees Haiti as a positive symbol, and they to go beyond that, they would need to know, you know, which people are trustworthy, which books make the most sense to look at. Where where can I find a reality of Haiti that is not just what I see in the headlines, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that it's not possible. Of course, plenty of people do it. But I think when we say that often people don't go beyond the symbol, it's not necessarily always because of negative, because they have a negative image of Haiti, right? Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it's just the barriers to accessing knowledge in different venues. So here's something uh, uh, you, you wrote, and the you is, of course, plural. Right. <laughs> uh, quote, our collection looks closely at the extent to which regional aesthetic canons ghettoize Haiti's literary production and exacerbate the nation's social political isolation, unquote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I just had an interview with Kayama Glover, and she was talking about the Martinican literary hegemon. Uh, mm -hmm. And she was trying to make space for the uh, Haitian spiralists, you know, mm -hmm, in, in mm -hmm. the canon. Uh, are you, which regional aesthetic canons uh, do you mean? Are you talking about these same folks or, or something mm -hmm. broader? Yes, I think in the introduction, um, we are mostly thinking about that kind of canon, right? Um, so either the Martinican or those centered in Paris, that kind of thing. But actually in the my current research, the book project that I'm working on looks at a lot of these things in the sense that oftentimes scholars will look at Haitian literature and kind of discard whatever doesn't fit the established narrative and so Kayama kind of pointed to this situation with the spiralists, right? Mm -hmm. um, where there's this image of what we need Caribbean literature to be. And if these people are not conforming to that, we're just not going to talk about them rather than trying to make space for what they represent within this established uh, canon, right? Um, but you see that even within Haitian literature, there are certain themes that are talked about and that are kind of celebrated within Haitian literature, the representation of these themes, be it violence, exile, voodoo, there are just certain things that are kind of valued um, as, rep as literary representations. And what you tend to see is that literary texts that do not engage with these themes or the established aesthetic are just not talked about. And mainly, I mean, outside of Haiti, right? Um, for scholars that study Haitian literature who are not in Haiti. So the inclusion of these Haitian-born writers and thinkers and this reader, mm -hmm. uh, I, I know you, 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 the argument is that you want to counter some of that uh, mm -hmm. by including them in this reader, but are you also making an essentialist argument for Haitian cultural authenticity? Uh, here's why I ask this, because uh, this was also written there. Those, quote, those who seek to learn about Haiti and find themselves almost entirely reliant on the writings of non-Haitians or Haitian writers residing in diaspora. Mm -hmm. what, what exactly is the secret sauce or the 11 drugs and spices of these Haitian writers and thinkers in Haiti? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, what, 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 what do they have that is, that is unique, that is essentialist, uh, you know, versus the Haitianist writers living outside of Haiti? Right. Yeah. I don't think there's a secret sauce. I think there's just a different perspective. Right. Um, when you think about, for example, a theme, the theme of exile, if you're working on exile, be it in Haitian literature or in sociology or in politics, if the only works that you read are either by foreigners or by Haitians situated outside of the country, that gives you a very specific view of the theme. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that there's nothing valuable in that. It just means that it's limited to that viewpoint. Whereas if you also consider exile from the vantage point of those who are in the country, whether they have chosen to stay in the country or whether they are unable to leave the country, that adds something. 
So it's not that there's a secret sauce. It's just that there are a variety of perspectives, a variety of ways to look at and understand Haiti. And if we only privilege looking at Haiti from the outside, we lose a lot in our understanding of it. The Pétion and Simone Bolivar exchange, I mm -hmm. thought was, was fascinating. And uh, and the tie-in with Venezuela and a lot, mm -hmm. and for me, the, the, the Petro-Caribe situation, you know what I mean? Like it's all mm -hmm. tie-in for me. Yes, you know? like, yes. So can you talk a little bit about that? This is to me where, you know, history is so important, right? And yes. how it stitches all the pieces together. Talk about, mm -hmm. you know, the Pétion, the Pétion piece you included in the Simone Bolivar uh, letter exchange. Okay, and this actually ties back to what we were just talking about. Um, but at the beginning of the question, when I was talking about the separation between scholarly endeavors and larger society, you're saying that this is something that you perhaps didn't know about. Whereas I think the connection between Bolivar and Pétion is actually well known um, in Haitian scholarly circles. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the functions of this reader, right, is taking some of that knowledge out of purely academic um, spheres and making it available to a more general public so that they can make the kind of connections that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it also counters this idea that Haiti was completely isolated from the world after independence, because we see that there are these connections that were cultivated between Haiti and other Latin American countries as they became countries at the time, right? And these, this connection with Latin America is one thing, you were talking about lesser known aspects of Haiti, is something that is not um, necessary stre necessarily stressed when we think about Haiti. When we think about Haiti and Haitian connections, we tend to think about the US and France, and there are reasons for that, obviously. Mm -hmm. But there is a very strong connection between Haiti and different Latin American countries. Mm -hmm. And that is from Haiti's inception to the present day, as you pointed out. For me, I've never been comfortable with you know, Haiti as a Francophone uh, nation. Is it or is it not? It depends what you mean by Francophone, right? Um, the term francophone and francophonie is very fraught everywhere, not just in Haiti or as relates to Haiti. Um, there's the political term, there's the literary term, it can mean all sorts of things. When we said that Haiti's status as a francophone nation is something that, you know, we need to be taking with a grain of salt, if you think of francophone as meaning French speaking, and the majority of Haitian people do not speak French, then that complicates the idea that Haiti is a francophone nation. Right. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when you think about Haiti's political status as a country, most of Haiti's official documents are written in French. Right. And mm -hmm. most of the interventions that Haiti makes on an international stage are made in French. So you cannot uh, extract the French language from Haiti. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we're saying that it's, it has a particular status as a francophone nation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if it's French, it's, uh, it, it relates to power when it comes to Haiti, right? If it's Creole, it's, it's what? <laughs> you know, I feel like that's, that's the traditional way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think it's that simple. I mean, power can be wielded in any language, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, a Haitian poet that I, I like a lot, Georges Gasca, who's no longer with us, used to say, you know, Haitian men who beat their wives, when they beat their wives, you bachua creole. It's not like they say, because I'm going to beat you, I'm going to use the French language because that's the language of power. So what did you leave out of this reader? <laughs> we left out so much. We left out so much because, well, first of all, we couldn't have a thousand page reader. We also left out some things because of permissions. There were things we really, really wanted to include, but we could not get permission for them. Um, we purposely left out a lot of things that we felt were more easily accessible, that people had access to either because they were published in the United States, either because they were already in English. And so we purposely left that stuff out to make room for things that maybe were not um, readily accessible in English. Um, we left out a lot of music, I felt. I feel like we could have included so much more in terms of Haiti's musical history. Mm -hmm. um, 
But there just, there wasn't room for everything. Uh, a woman's quest for freedom in a land of re-enslavement. Oh, okay. So the earlier stuff is mostly not mine. That's mostly Laurent Dubois with the historian. But yeah, that was something we thought was very important to include because um, in Haiti, because we became independent so early as compared to a lot of other Caribbean nations, what happens is there are not a lot of documents relating to enslaved people trying to get independent, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have, for example, if you think of African-American literature, we have the slave narratives, which is a whole genre, right? Mm -hmm. About people, people who are enslaved writing about their lives. And we don't have that on the Haitian side. We have fictional accounts, but we don't have a lot of the words of Haitian people themselves mm -hmm. um, at the time of their enslavement trying to, to get free. And so that's why we thought it was very important to include that document to have more of a sense of what the voice of an enslaved person was like and what their life was like at the time and not a fictional account. Okay. So is, is Evelyn Toriel is your mom, right? Yes. Okay. So I know you know about the infamous Rosalie piece. <laughs> 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 oh, you know, somebody might pull you to real card if you don't, right? Like, so why the inclusion of that piece? Why is it, why is it important? Because I, I see that piece and, and so many stuff that I read, uh, mm -hmm. it keeps popping up. Why, why is that? Why is that that that, that uh, story so important, or that novel or novel novella? I don't know. Well, it, yeah, it's called novel novella. It's been called both. Yeah. Um, I think because of what I just said in terms of the paucity of slave narratives coming from the Haitian literary tradition, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of Haitian texts be they poetry, theater, et cetera, on the Haitian Revolution itself, mm -hmm. um, on the heroes of the revolution, a lot of historical works. Um, but we don't have a lot of text about what it was like to live in Saint-Domingue as a Black person, as an yes. enslaved person. Mm -hmm. um, and so from the historical side, we understand why, in terms of why documents were lost, um, the you know, all of that kind of thing. But from the literary perspective, it's interesting as well, because there are places that have a lot more historical novels set in that particular time period. In mm -hmm. Haiti, we have a few, but not a lot. And so Rosaline Femme is one of the earliest, well, not one of the earliest, maybe one of the most um, recent and most important that we have that sets characters in this time period before Haiti became independent and show us what it would be like to live during that time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, what, uh, what, what, what about the Antoine Dupré poem? You translated that one, see? And yes. I, I was going to get to something you. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what, why did you choose that to include that in the reader? Well, Antoine Dupré for me is very emblematic of something that is common knowledge in Haiti, and that people outside of Haiti don't really necessarily know about. Um, People, if you go to school in Haiti and you go to school through high school, you've learned this poem, right? Um, it's something that people even in their older years can recite by heart, right? Especially mm -hmm. the final stanza because it's about, you know, fighting, uh, not only fighting for independence, but guarding that independence and making sure that it's never taken away. And so... For me, it was important to include it because to show justement that the idea that uh, English-speaking people, people outside of Haiti have of Haiti is not always the image that we have of it when we're here, right? Because mm -hmm. this poem is something, it's, it's just in the cultural memory, I would say, of Haitian people who have gone through the school system, who are literate, et cetera. It's just always there, even if you're not going around reciting it. It's part of your cultural memory, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like it's something that is not known at all, except by maybe a few specialists, right, outside of Haiti. So that's why I thought it was very important to include it. It's also, Antoine Dupré is one of those early Haitian writers who tends to be dismissed as only, you know, imitating 
French verse, having nothing original to contribute, etc. But I think the value of authors and their literary works, right, is in how they endure over time. And mm -hmm. even in 2022, people are still learning and reciting this poem. Can you read the Dupre poem? The Haitian literary tradition and not just contemporary Haitian literature or not just Haitian novels or the most uh, recent publications, etc. I think all of these works are part of a larger landscape. And when we ignore what's what came before or what texts were in dialogue with the ones that we study, I think we lose a lot of meaning and a lot of the texture. So the Dupré poem was important for me to include because even though it's not something that is always referred to in critical text or that people talk about a lot, it is very present in Haitian literary consciousness, right? And so the Haitian writers working today grew up with this poem. And so they're not necessarily um, seeking to imitate it or respond to it or be in dialogue with it, but it's there. And I think it's um, really important to have a better idea of the works that are the foundations of, of Haitian literature and that today's authors are building upon. So I'm not going to read the entire poem because it's rather long, but I will read the final stanza, which is very powerful and speaks also to this constant Haitian desire um, to guard against or to preserve Haitian um, liberty, right? The independence, freedom, all of, all of these themes. So since this is a very early poem, it's very present in this work. Haïti, mère ou chérie, reçois mes derniers adieux, que l'amour de la patrie enflamme tous nos neveux. Si quelques jours sur tes rives, reparaissent nos tyrans, que leurs hordes fugitives servent d'engrais à nos champs. And um, I could also read the English translation of that last stanza. Um, <clears throat> Haiti, dear mother, receive my final farewell. May love of country kindle our descendants' ardor. And if ever on your banks our tyrants were to return, may their fleeting throngs fertilize our fields. Um, I lost the rhyme in the translation. Translating poetry is very, very difficult. Um, so I don't claim to be an expert at that, but I hope that the idea um, that Duplia was going for comes through and the, the passion, the sentiment that he was trying to express. So what, what, which, what piece do you want the audience to know about to pique their interest uh, out of the Occupied Haiti uh, section? Oh, I have a really, I have a soft spot for Georges Sylvain um, and for all of his work, working, writing against the U.S. occupation and his, you know, organizing, marching, speaking. Um, he was very tireless, you know, um, against the, the U.S. occupation of Haiti in 1915. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he's someone who people kind of cite or know about, but don't necessarily know the extent of what he did. I mean, when you read his two books that were published posthumously, Dix um, années de lutte pour la liberté. Mm -hmm. And these, so these are his friends who gathered his speeches and letters, et cetera, in these two volumes um, dedicated to his fight against the U.S. occupation. It was tireless. He went on speaking tours around the country. He spoke internationally. He wrote to all kinds of newspapers around the world. I mean, he worked tirelessly against the, the occupation. And we think of him as a writer, which he was, but his activist work 
is something that was very, very uh, unique at the time, just the extent of it, not the fact that he was doing it, but that he kind of gave his life over to this. My dear Sean Mine, mm-hmm. Widow Messina, anything about that piece that stuck out for you? Oh, I yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a fabulous piece that was contributed by Evelyn Alexi, who works on the occupation as well. And what's, I think what is very important for that is showing how Charlemagne Peralt was part of a network. Um, and when I say part of a network, I don't mean the Kakos. I think we, we tend to think about these historical figures, uh, especially the people we think of as heroes, as these individuals who kind of said, you know, I am against the occupation and this is what I'm going to do to combat it. Whereas this is a letter from his mother, right? And you see that his mother is supporting him and enabling him, right? Telling him, go here, don't do this, be aware of this. Um, and he's also in a network with his brothers and friends and community. So it's not, we see this one figure, right? But for that figure to be possible, there were all these other people around him. And so I think that that letter for me was very important to include. And also, you know, just the role of, of a mother, right? And how, you know, we might think of him today as Shalmain Pigal's hero, but that was her son, and she just wanted him to be safe. Uh, Evelyn also pointed out in my interview with her that uh, the, the, the role of, of the women mm-hmm. uh, during the occupation is, it's, it's, uh, the historical record is, <laughs> there's so little that, that she could find. Yeah. Uh, you know, to turn into a book, but but it was obviously there, right? Especially the woman and, and you know. Oh, definitely. Market. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, Grace Grace Sanders Johnson has a book coming out on this, yeah. on Haitian women during the occupation. And also, I think to find information, you kind of have to read um, against the grain or kind of find things. For example, when I was doing my research on Georges Sylvain, in his two books, there are photographs of uh, demonstrations and in two of the photographs, the demonstrations are mostly women. And then when you read the captions, they were organized by his wife, Eugenie Malbroche. And so you can find little bits and pieces of how she went about organizing those marches and why. But as far as I know, there are not, there's not a lot of historical documents that focus solely on that, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so now, yeah, I think there are more and more historians that are doing that kind of work or trying mm-hmm. to tease out these pieces to get a more complete picture of women during the occupation. Mm-hmm. So, so when you try to tease these, these pieces out, uh, is there a point where you have to stop and, and uh, before you go into the realm of the speculative or the artistic? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining a novelist and, and poets could, you know, they have more of a, a, a carte blanche, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to make to, things up. To yeah. make, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, it's but, true. Yeah, but historians and, and, and academics, you know, uh, you, you're a bit more, more constrained, right? Would that be a fair assessment? I think so, yes, but I'm not a historian, right? Right, 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 right. I'm a literary <laughs> scholar. And so I think, so I focus on the text where I do find what, what I'm looking for, um, what mm-hmm. interests me. But also sometimes you just have to wait for years. Like you kind of... There's something that interests you, you look, you don't find it. And then, you know, maybe 15, 20 years later, you find the text or you find a newspaper article that allows you to continue down this path that you had started. Okay. Any other piece you want to, the Vincent and Trujillo? Well, I can talk, I mean, if we're talking about translation, I can talk about the Isil Kul piece which is in that same um, section, right, uh, mm-hmm. around the Parsley Massacre. Yes. So I did a lot of the translations in this book. And, you know, I'm a translator. It's work that I enjoy doing. Um, I think it's important. I think it's valuable. But to date, I think this is the hardest piece I've ever translated. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because of the linguistic aspect of it. It's pretty straightforward, I think. I did have to work with handwritten, a handwritten transcript, so that um, part was challenging. But just in terms of um, hearing this man's voice, right? We talk about the Parsley Massacre, and there are novels about it, there are poems about it, 
And I think we have a good historical grasp of what happened. I think mm -hmm. it's pretty clear. But reading this man's testimony, translating his testimony, because when you translate, right, you read the text over and over and over again. You're living mm -hmm. with this text. And to hear this man's words, when I say hear, I didn't hear his actual voice, right? Um, I'm reading them off the page, and they're translated. Um, so because they're, when I say they're translated, so they're, he's speaking Creole, but a Creole with Spanish as well, right? Because this is someone who's grown up in the Dominican Republic, and I'm translating it all into English. So I was working between three languages, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and just... This, I mean, what struck me, what stays with me even today is just the sense of bewilderment, right? Where he's like, I don't know why they did this. I don't know. And this is years later he's giving this testimony, right? He's no longer a child in the Dominican Republic. And I think that this interview or this um, testimony, more than anything else, really brought that massacre home to me in terms of what it must be like to live in a place that you consider home and then one day have all of this violence leashed against you, um, unleashed against you, seemingly out of the blue, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that piece was really important for me and very, I guess that's the one emotionally that took the most, the hardest toll on me in terms mm -hmm. of working on it for the book. I uh, want to move now to a separate piece you wrote that is not part of the reader we just discussed, titled Dear Anna. You uh, wrote this essay titled My Dearest Anna. Is this a love letter to your daughter? Is it a survival guide or both? Oh, I definitely don't think of it as a survival guide. That's interesting. I feel like that's an interesting take. Um, I don't know that there's any advice in it that someone could follow um, to deal with such a situation. So I wouldn't say it's a survival guide. A love letter, sure. I think also it was a way for me to kind of mark the moment because, I mean, my daughter lived through it with me, but she was very young at the time. And she has very, for example, talking to her now, she has very little memory of that actual time where the things she remembers are very, are small details, but not kind of the overall picture of what was happening at the time. And so I wanted something to mark the moment for both of us, um, what it was like for us to live through that together at that moment in time. Just for the people in the audience who haven't had a chance to read the essay yet. So I'd appreciate it if you kind of you know, read this passage or pick any one of your favorite passages uh, to kind of end, give, give your thoughts on, on what you thought of it. Uh, that would be helpful. Thank you. I wonder if you'll be able to look back at January 2010 as a turning point, identify it as the moment when we all said enough is enough and decided to change things for the better. So far, I doubt it. So yeah, this is I don't know. This is kind of sad to think about. Anna's not in her 20s. Uh, she's still in her teens, but she's just starting college. And so, you know, it's it's another big moment. Um, in 2010, she was finishing kindergarten and about to start the first grade. And so now in this current crisis mode that we're living through, um, she finished high school and is starting college. So it's another big moment. And um I don't know if she would consider 2010 a turning point. Um, I feel that it wasn't. Um, I feel that not very much changed after those first few weeks and months uh, following the earthquake. Not much changed. And unfortunately, what did end up changing um, from 2010 onwards changed for the worse, right? The Piastika regime has not brought many good things to us here in Haiti. And so the moment, I say the moment, but the period that we're living through right now that um, is a very difficult one has been going on for several years now. And 
Um, I don't know. I So I could say the same thing about this point in time, right? I could say, is this going to be a turning point? And what's down the road for us now in 10, 12 years? I hope that it would be something better. I can't imagine that it could be any worse, but of course it always could be, right? Every time we say that in Haiti, you know, things can't get any worse. We've hit rock bottom. Something happens to show us that, no, they really can get worse. Um, so I hope that's not the case for this current point in time, but um, it's not looking good. Why was leaving Haiti unthinkable to you? What does it say about your privileged position that you had a choice? Leaving the country in 2010 was unthinkable to me because Haiti is home. I mean, it's not easy to leave your home. I think, you know, people, you look at the waves of migrants all over the world, and I think a lot of times people don't appreciate what goes into that decision of deciding to pick up everything and your family or the loved ones that you can travel with and to leave. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and of course you do have to have a certain amount of privilege to do it, no matter how you're leaving, whether it's on foot or by boat or by plane, it takes money and resources. So not everyone can do it, but even if you have the resources to do it, it's not and it's an easy decision to make. It's not something that people do lightly, right? When you're talking about leaving for good, not just going abroad to study or to tour someplace or, you know, with the idea that you can come back. But when you're really thinking about uprooting your entire life, it's not an easy decision to make. And so, yeah, it's not something that... Um, really even occurred to me after 2010. People would ask me, but it's not something that I seriously considered. I have a lot of family here. I mean, my parents are here. I I have a huge family. And um, a lot of us are here. I have friends here. You know, I, it's just my, I feel like my life is here. And so, and also, you know, Haiti, it was, I feel like we can say this about different moments in Haitian history, but at the time, you know, it was it was a hard time for Haiti. And so it seemed to me like it would be very strange to leave in that moment, right? I mean, when someone you care about is having difficulties, that's not the time when you abandon them if you are able to do something, if you are able to do um, something else, right? Sometimes you have no choice or you have nothing to offer or whatever circumstances vary, I know. But um, yes, it's not something that I even really considered um, with any kind of seriousness. The essay, you juxtaposed the macro the earthquake relief with the micro and forcing uh, Anna's bedtime. What's this tension there, if any? You know, it's interesting to think about living through the earthquake and having to deal with grocery shopping and rising prices and making sure your kid goes to bed on time and not being late for school while you know you had this huge catastrophic event and people are trying to rebuild their lives in the aftermath of the earthquake but i wonder if in some ways living through that didn't prepare us or maybe we can look back at that and kind of draw resources to help us live through what we're living through now right where you know, you have COVID-19, which is a pandemic, so affecting the entire world. We also have the uh, political and violent upheaval that we're living through right now in Haiti. And against this background of chaos, right, we still have kids going to school and their parents trying to get them to go to bed in time or get them ready for school in the morning and 
you know, making sure they study for a test. And it's kind of surreal to um, have to deal with these little things as you're dealing with these huge problems that affect the society as a whole. Um, but at the same time, when there's no end in sight for these larger problems, it's like, well, what do we do? Do we stop living our daily lives? Do we stop paying attention to these details and focus solely on these larger issues? And I don't know what the right answer is, but um, there is a tension there. And every now and then we kind of think about it and... Um, I don't know, kind of laugh at the absurdity of it all. So, Nadev, you say that uh, your decision to stay after the earthquake was, uh, from, from the sound of it, deeply personal. Uh, I take that. But it kind of brought uh, an additional set of questions for me regarding the, you know, this, this, this ongoing tension that, I've noticed between native Haitians and Haitians in the diaspora who left. And we can go back to the Duvalier exodus. Um, and how I always felt that based on my conversations with, you know, Haitians throughout the years that uh, the natives, there's a certain amount of uh, maybe resentment is not the right word, uh, that my parents' generation left uh left them to their own device um you deciding to stay versus other haitians who decide to leave i know at the personal level uh one can't be too judgmental but can you look at as an intellectual can you look at that whole discussion about uh loyalty to one's culture to one's country uh, when, you know, and, and collectively, as a collective decision, not necessarily as, you know, individuals leaving or deciding to stay. Have you thought about, like, collectively what that means? And in what sense does that sort of describe the uh, the current makeup and the uh, dynamism between the diaspora and the natives Haitians who who had who because they like the means or because maybe they do have the means and decided to stay anyway like you did like what's that tension there and 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 how do you uh have you thought about that and uh, can you can you flesh that out for us a little bit thank you you know it's interesting because when this question is posed a lot of times people dress this um opposition between haitians nazi fnata or or living in haiti and staying in haiti and the diaspora as people who have gone and who have left Haiti. But when I think about my own life or that of my family, relatives, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of back and forth. Um, I was not born in Haiti. I moved here when I was 11. I left briefly. Uh, I went to college, I went to study and I came back. Um, that's something that's repeated a lot. My parents left during the Duvalier regime. They came back in 1987. Um, I know people who have left Haiti, have returned, and then have left again. Um, there are all kinds, there's all kinds of movements, right? Um, and so, I don't know, it's, it's a hard question for me to answer because I think that a lot of the times people don't take into account all the different parameters. They act as though there are these fixed entities of Haitians in Haiti and the diaspora, but those, both of those entities are, are multiple, right? Um, Haitians in Haiti don't mean that these are people who have never left or whose parents have not left, that they have no experience of outside of Haiti or elsewhere. Right, and at the same time, when you say diaspora, who is the diaspora? You know, uh, is it the diaspora in Chile and Brazil? Is it the diaspora in Canada or in France? They are all different configurations, um, down to the cities and localities. And so, I I think it's a very difficult thing for me to speak to in the abstract. Right, um, I think there's a lot 
of movement back and forth. I will say that um, I think the movement is a good thing and that increased communications are good things um, just so that people have more of a sense of what the other realities are, right? So someone who's outside of Haiti right now, the more access they can have to people who are in Haiti and to have that perspective um, or those perspectives, right? That's, that's good. And people who are in Haiti, when you think about the diaspora, well, who are you talking to in the diaspora? Who are you hearing from the diaspora? Um, is it Haitians in Florida? Is it Haitians in New York? Is it Haitians in the DR? Is it Haitians who have all of their papers in order? Is it Haitians who don't have all of their papers in order? What are those experiences like? Um, so I think um, if we can ex increase communications and exposure to these different realities, that's always a good thing. But um, it's hard to speak in the abstract about these tensions because the situations are quite varied and complex, I think. So what exactly is a literary historian? What do you do? And how do you add to the Haitian culture on what you do? How do you feel you add to it? You add value to our culture? Okay, so in the context of our conversation, I say that I'm a literary historian because we're referring specifically to the Haiti reader. And the Haiti reader wants to showcase a series of documents to give readers uh, an idea of Haiti that they might not have had before, to give them documents to be able to tell and to read a more complete story of Haiti. And so the literary historian within that context, right, is preserving and um, presenting certain texts, literary texts, that people may not be aware of. So it's going to certain periods and saying, look, these are the stories that people were writing at that time. These are the songs that we had at the time. Um, you know, we're very aware of this political moment. Here are, here's the literary corollary to that, if you want. But I would say that in my professional practice outside of the Haiti Reader, I don't know if I focus so much on, on history. I guess I think of literary historians as people who really go digging, right? Digging into archives, um, wherever those archives may be, whatever the type of archive, to kind of bring forth um, texts that have been forgotten over time or that have been lost um, in various ways. And I do some of that, but mm, I don't know. I, I feel like there are people who do much more of it and maybe do it better than, than I do. I do like to, um, to bring attention to texts that people don't always recognize or pay attention to, but they're not really lost, they're more ignored. So I don't know if that would fall um, in the purview of what a literary historian does. But an example of this is Haitian's short stories. I feel like there are tons of them and they're all over the place, but people don't necessarily pay attention to them. And when I say Haitian's short stories, I mean dating back from the 19th century. Most of Haiti's great prose writers also wrote short stories, even those that are mostly known as novelists. Um, but in general, I feel like the short stories don't really get a lot of attention. So if I were to think of myself as a literary historian in that context, it would be kind of filling in the gaps um, of our literary tradition and saying, you know, no, we didn't just have theater or poetry or novels at this point. The stories were very important. This is where they circulated. This is who was reading them. Um, this is what their importance was um, within within a certain context. Um, so I guess maybe in that sense, I consider myself a literary historian. 
but I think really in the context of the Haitian of the Haiti reader, it's something that's that role is very important. And for broader society, because your question is um, how is that important to the culture, I feel like a lot of times we forget things, everything that we were able to do and to create. Um, and we have, I think Haitians in general, we've created a lot of knowledge, but we've also created a lot of art and a lot of ways of thinking through um, our experiences, our histories, our, our, our encounters. And I think it's important to have access to texts that express those things so that we can use them as a resource as we are facing the, the present moment. Who or what is an authentic Haitian? Wow, what a question. Um, I don't presume to define the authentic Haitian. What I will say is that the definition often changes according to the people or the person who is defining, who's doing the defining. Um, and I think there are a lot of competing ideas of what an authentic Haitian is. Um, I do think that outsiders, when I say outsiders, people who are not Haitian, should not be in the business of determining who authentic, who is an authentic Haitian and who is not an authentic Haitian. And I think too often in foreign journalism and foreign scholarship, I do see those kinds of um, determinations and that really bothers me. Um, because at the end of the day, I feel like there's a sort of essentialism going on there um, that Haitians can only be one thing, can only fit in one box. And that's very limiting, right? And Haitians have never, have never done that, have never fit just one box. I mean, I say Haitians because that's what we're talking about, but people in general, right? People are many things. Um, and so it's ridiculous to expect that all Haitians have to be one thing. And if they are not that one thing, then they are not Haitian. Um, so yeah, I myself am not going to define the authentication. Um, <laughs> and I really resent when non-Haitians attempt to do so. Now within Haiti, there's a lot of discussions about who's a true Haitian, who's not a true Haitian, you're Haitian if you do X, Y, Z. And I imagine you can find this across um, a lot of cultures. But I think we need also to you know, differentiate what people say in casual conversation or what they say to tease people or to take, test the boundaries of certain relationships or to judge people's patriotism or um, to make comments on people's character, right? We need to differentiate between that kind of thing and thinking that these people really do have in their mind that what an authentication is, right? I don't know if that's, if the idea that I'm trying to get at is coming across here. I mean, there are things that people say, there's a way that, you know, you have this kind of give and take in conversation of, no, you're not really Haitian. But it's a way of either creating a bond or saying, no, there's a boundary here. There's, you know, I'm not going to go any further in my relation with you. There's all kinds of things going on, but it doesn't mean that the speaker actually thinks that all Haitians are X or Y or Z. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the authentication is. Haitians aren't monolingual, are we? Can you carve out and sort of, you know, name for us the different types of languages that are spoken geographically throughout Haiti? Well, I think many Haitians are monolingual. Um, I don't think the fact of being monolingual means that you, first of all, have to stay that way forever. And second of all, that you are unaware of the other languages that are in your space, right? But there are a great number of Haitians who are monolingual and, you know, who speak only Creole. Now, there are also a great number of Haitians, and I think 
that is a number that tends to be underestimated, right? There are a great number of Haitians who speak multiple languages. And in terms of geography, you'll have like Haitians along the border with the Dominican Republic, many of them are bilingual out of necessity, right? If they're going to the Dominican Republic for medical care, to go to market, to buy, to sell, they're having relationships, whether they're amicable, contentious, whatever, but if there are relationships with people on that border from the Dominican Republic, then people need to know how to speak to each other. So there are a lot of Haitians in that space who speak Spanish. You have a lot of Haitians who speak English, either because of proximity to the U.S., either because of the U.S.'s cultural imperialism, right? We're all watching uh, TV shows, listening to American music on the radio. It's, I mean, it's everywhere. You also have a lot of movement between Haiti and the Bahamas, Haiti and Turks and Caicos, in addition to Haiti and the U.S., right? So English is also a constant presence um, in Haiti. There's, of course, French. Um, I think most of us know that history. Um, what other languages? There are small pockets of other languages, but that are not as common. For example, German. There's like a little German enclave. Um, there are languages that some Haitian linguists have talked about, but that I don't have experience with myself. I know there's one Haitian linguist who talks about bulit. I think he says it's in the north, but that's not something that, that I can speak to myself. So I think, yes, there are definitely a lot of monolingual Haitians, but the country as a whole, I don't think, you can't say that Haiti is just a monolingual. There's a lot of different languages. And when people speak, even people who are monolingual, you will see the influence of these other languages in their speech patterns, depending on where in the country they're located, right? Um, so yeah, I, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with um, Haiti linguistically, I think. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R.